calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome. You've got the Previously on Digital Folklore. When you've been running a show for as long as I have, topics find you. Our friend James Bell describes folklorists as enthusiasm enthusiasts. I just found this convention that's happening in like a few months. The Meme Enthusiast Mega Expo. How much for tickets? They're big expensive. We sign up as speakers. We would have to do a presentation then. What would we talk that's about? It's all just details. We can figure that out later. Mason Amadeus. And this is Digital Folklore. 4chan. Uh, anime profile pictures. MySpace. Second Life. Homestar Runner. Uh, Newgrounds. Neopets. Webkins. Club Penguin. No. No, we're fixating again. Okay, what if we did the presentation about early 2000 browser MMOs just in general. I feel like a broken record, but that's still, that's too broad. Also, there's already a panel about the early 2000s called All Your GIF Are Belong to Us. Mm. Yeah, and there's a debate on whether it's GIF or JIF, but... Uh, well, the guy who invented the format said it's pronounced JIF, mm. but I, I don't like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't like it either. I miss Club Penguin. So so what, what do we have on the list? Um, the cultural significance and contextual analysis of Nun Pizza with left beef. Really? That's, that's the only one we wrote down? Yeah. What, what about the other thing? The, the water, there was like a water thing, the pH uh, thing? I, I, I don't remember. We've been doing this for hours. Uh, the pH thing was that the chemist who invented the pH scale never said what the P stands for. That's it. Yeah, uh. that's right. There was that paper I stumbled on that talked about how the origin and meaning of the P and pH is a legend. And nobody actually knows the truth. But 
That, that's not a meme. No. I guess it's not. This is but a meme conference. Man, I thought this would be easier. Well, um, we have about 12 hours and we have to be at the convention center, so... Which is two and a half hours away. I'm gonna throw up. Maybe we're boxing ourselves in too much. Yeah? I mean, we could always pull a digital folklore, find something related enough to memes, and then use that to look at a wider topic, anything else, really. I don't know how I feel about calling that pulling a digital folklore, <laughs> but, but you're not wrong. What about that little side project thing you've been making? Oh, may maybe. A side project thing? Yeah, I kind of wanted it to be a surprise, but mostly I just don't know what to do with it. It's just like a little audio piece about the folklore of software development. Uh, yeah, you you mentioned that before. Yeah, but, but we got an email from Ben Kruger, who listens to the show, about rubber duck debugging, and that, uh, that just sent me down the rabbit hole and I started on it. Rubber duck debugging? Yeah, yeah, so it's, it's the practice of explaining a complex coding problem out loud to a literal rubber duck. And that's really just the act of talking through your steps out loud, so it forces you to slow down and you often have this epiphany. Something comes to you, you find the solution. I, I still think it helps to have the actual duck, though. Is that why you have that little rubber frog on top of your speakers? Oh, no, the, the rubber frog is for sound design problems. He's not very good at code. Okay. The, the big knitted frog is the one that I talked to about code I stuff. I don't know how we could really use that for a meme conference, though. Yeah, I get what you mean. It's not like it's not interesting. I just don't know if programmers are the demographic we're really pitching oh, to. Oh, hold on. Not hmm? programming, but you know what is programmed? The algorithm. Oh, okay, yeah. We could jump off from how your algorithm tailors what kind of memes you see. Into how it shapes your opinions and your ideas of the world because that's what's being reflected back at you. And how memes are markers of community and identity. And then how that crosses over into real life. And how we You're can- You're getting way oh. too broad again. <laughs> you scared me, little dude. You got so quiet. I zoned out for a bit. I was scrolling through stuff on LimeWire. Lime what? Oh my god, really? Yeah, your little software thing reminded me of it. Did you know it's an AI-generated NFT platform now? <sighs> of course it is. Surely that's not run by the same folks. Nah, just the same name. The original LimeWire got shut down for all the piracy, obviously. Old versions still work, though. Digby. If you don't upgrade. Digby? Do not download an old version of LimeWire into your brain, please. I'm fine until my rabies shot expires. No, seriously, hey, I am... Mason, um... Yeah? I was looking over that list that Mark gave us of, of folks that he interviewed on his show, and I'm thinking, maybe we try to ring up Dr. Cassandra Pfeiffer. Oh? Yeah, I think she'd be great to talk to about this. She did this lecture for the Folklore Podcast about folk groups and the lore that both divides them and binds them. Oh, yeah, she sounds perfect. We could talk to her, pick her brain, and hopefully that'll help us narrow something down. I'll send her a message real quick and see if she's free. Um, My name is Cassandra Pfeiffer. I grew up in North Central Illinois, but I lived in England for a year where I did my master's degree. I lived in South Louisiana for seven years where I did my PhD, and now I'm in Southwest Nebraska teaching English. So I teach composition, which I use a social media media literacy theme for those classes. And I teach folklore, um, and I teach some literature classes, but folklore is really my jam. Awesome. <laughs> it's everything I love. Yeah, it's... Uh... 
interesting once that becomes somebody's love, the way that they can find a way to make a link to folklore, no matter what the discipline they're Mm -hmm. officially in. Uh, So that's really cool. All right, Mason, do you want to frame our first official, official question? Well, it'll be a good spot to jump in. Um, I guess one of the things that we've been interested in and explored a little bit in the show is the ways that the online platforms we use shape the folklore that's created on them. Mm-hmm. You know, Tumblr has a different identity than Reddit and that sort of thing. Yeah, there's an, one of my students, actually, he was writing about algorithms in his final project last semester, and he had a sentence, and I put, as I graded, I'm like, I know this is the favorite sentence. I'm going to read it all day, and it was like 8 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> um, but he said... The algorithm is the brain behind my opinion, which Ooh. I thought was so fascinating because um, a lot of what we talk about in composition, in the composition class is how the information gets presented to us and what we then in turn do with that information. And so I think that the way the algorithms are set up to filter out content to us absolutely informs how we then transmit folklore and how we respond to it. The algorithm almost becomes part of the oral tradition. I use oral loosely because it's obviously not oral, but like the algorithm is kind of like stepping in and disrupting a little bit of that tradition and becoming part of the driver of it. The question then that I have is, what is that doing to our folklore? What is that doing to our folk groups too? Because if we have this weird, not human being such a part of the transmission process, what is that doing to our ability to relate to our folklore and stuff? And I feel like it's especially fascinating because it is shaped by your interactions as well as it is shaping your interactions. Yeah. Like the, there's, yeah. it's a two-way street. There's definitely a power dynamic at play though, right? It's because mm-hmm. you've got the algorithm, the way that it's been designed, and then the algorithm, the way that it is being continually reinforced in certain directions by millions of other inputs, mm-hmm. other people like you, and then you have your little blip in that, just creating some influence, but at the same time gathering everything else that it is assuming that you will like or that will interact with your emotional capacity to engage with that platform, either positively or negatively, that then starts to create the filter bubble that we all live in. Yeah. And then some people, there's the this documentary, The Social Dilemma, where they talk about that people essentially, if you look at a person you disagree with, extru- like disagree with so much, and you're thinking about, well, how are they not seeing all the things that I'm seeing? The answer is that they're not because they have a totally different look at what is happening in the world. So you have somebody super far right and super far left the things that they see and then the lore that they engage with is so different that it's almost like they're living and existing in two different planes of reality because they're so opposed to each other and it's just so fascinating. Yeah, your algorithm in a, in a way becomes its own instantiation of your friend or your friend group because mm-hmm. the people that you start to spend more time with, they're the ones that you're naturally going to text with back and forth. They're the ones that are going to text you. And now your algorithm is stepping in and saying, hey, I haven't heard from you recently. So that's that's really weird the way that these different platforms become their own persona in our lives. I have, yeah. I have a relationship with everybody on a platform, but then I also have my relationship with that platform itself. Yeah, I had... Something that I noticed, this was, was it last year that the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp case, that was last summer, right? Yeah. In terms of like the memes that I was seeing, it was so interesting because my Instagram feed or like the For You page, anytime I saw 
memes or reels about that case. It was all very much pro Johnny Depp. Amber Heard is a villain. It's like that whole like caricaturization of that case. And I didn't follow the case. I didn't watch any of it. I was just seeing it. But then Twitter was the exact opposite mm. where Amber Heard was the protagonist of that case and Johnny Depp was the villain. And I was so interested that I could have these two accounts. They might as well have been different court cases right. and different incidents because of the way that they were being represented. I was seeing both windows into it, and it was wild to see it play out in that way. Yeah, you were straddling the line of that binary with your two platforms mm-hmm. algorithms. That is interesting. Yeah, exactly. And what I find, I think, most interesting is that idea of you'd never cross paths with these other people. The other side of the coin we want to touch on on this is like people finding their community online in different spaces, how that affects their sense of identity, even as simple as being a part of a a fandom that's really passionate, Mm -hmm. that reinforcement and engaging with that can make that a bigger part of what you consider to make up your identity. Yeah. And I've had some experience with that back in the early days of AOL and message boards uh, through InSync fan fiction, oddly enough. <laughs> <laughs> That's I was, awesome. I was obsessed with InSync when I was a kid. And so there was this this fan fiction writer, Fiction Lynn, and me and my friend Julie were obsessed with her stories, just obsessed. We'd like sit up all night waiting for the chapter drop to happen. And like, so we'd be on this message board um, talking to all of the other Fiction Lynn readers. And I cannot remember what the message board platform was, but he had so much fun waiting for the chapter to drop and then discussing the chapter and doing all of these things. And that was like my early teen years, like 13, 14, when we were reading all those Fiction Lynn stories. I had, you know, I had similar things back in the day, but this is back in dial-up where you would intentionally go to like a certain platform. Like one of them was a university bulletin board system that was close by. It's a lot like Reddit, right? So there's like a general area and then there'd be all these little subgroups that you could go into and all of them had their own different personality. Everything was primarily text-based at the time. Things are very different today, but at the same time at the core level, they're very, very similar to like what we started out with. And I guess what we've been doing forever, the format's just changing or the uh, place you go is just changing. I'm wondering, thinking about the lecture that you did uh, for the Folklore podcast, seems like you drew a lot of that from the things that you instill to your students. Is there a central thesis or idea that you're trying to communicate to your students when you approach them with these kinds of topics? My primary goal for Intro to Folklore for those students is to really get them to think like a folklorist or like a modern folklorist, I should say, where they don't respond to different folk groups and they certainly don't respond to different types of folklore through the lens of their personal reaction to it or how they personally feel about it. Conspiracy theories are probably the easiest thing to kind of think about when we see somebody who is pushing a conspiracy theory or reaction is to say, oh, that's so stupid. How could you possibly think that? And my goal for my students is to get them, like, just step back from that and think about why is that conspiracy theory so useful to that person? Why are they so latched onto it? Mm. Just so to eliminate the judgment factor that comes into place so yeah. often. Um, anytime we see something that we don't understand, I mean, there's the the new TikTok trend of ingesting borax. <laughs> and so that's a thousand percent going to come up in my classes. 
And I'll say our answer to this trend is to not say you guys are insane and stupid and it's a Darwin Award and it's all these things. It's to say, what about these horrifically dangerous things? Why why do they continue to be so worthwhile to us? Um, Because like when I was a kid, we did wall rushes. Are you guys familiar with wall rushes? It sounds like you run as fast as you can at a wall and smack into it and see what (laughs) No, what we would do, so we would like, you you lean over and you take in a bunch of deep breaths and then oh, you cross yeah. your arms and they push on your chest and you pass out. Yep. And like, oh. we would do that for hours, like constantly. And it's so unhealthy. I remember my parents <laughs> asking me if I was doing that at school when I was a kid, but nobody at my school was. Yeah, me, my sisters and my cousins, we would spend hours and we it was a riot to do that. And we were like, this is the best thing ever. But it's like, no, what's that doing to your brain? <laughs> like, what yeah, are you right. doing to yourself? Yeah. So it's not like, like when these TikTok challenges come up, it's not like they're unique to that one group of people. Every kid has a story of something they did that they thought was cool that could have ended really badly for them. And so I try and get my students to think, why do so many of us <laughs> choose to do these otherwise kind of insane things like that dangerous play there's a lot of a lot of folklorists that focus in on children's folklore and so they'll a lot of their studies are revolve around the dangerous play and the pushing of the boundaries and figuring out what your limits are when you're at that age hey listeners if you're like me and enjoy escaping to a real movie theater then regal unlimited just makes sense it's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits you can see any standard 2d movie anytime with no blackout dates or restrictions and your membership lets you get into premium format shows like imax and 4dx at a reduced cost plus you'll save 10 percent on all non-alcoholic concessions regal unlimited It's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. So, if you're planning on seeing a couple movies this month, join Regal Unlimited. Now is the best time as summer's coming up. Sign up now in the Regal app or on the website at regmovies.com slash unlimited. And be sure to use the code FOLKLORE24 to get 10% off a three-month subscription. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. Hey ya, Mason here. And I don't think I've mentioned it on the show before, but I have two cats, two big old boys named Chester and Cinders, and I love them both very much. But I didn't grow up with cats, and I've never suffered from general allergies like pollen, so it took me an embarrassingly long time to realize that I was allergic to them. No joke, when I started working from home, I would say things like, wow, I feel like I'm losing my voice every day, or isn't it weird, I can't breathe through my nose for some reason. Ultimately, it was my partner who said, that really sounds like allergies. Allergies, and long story short, now I take a Claritin every day. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claret and Clear. Use as directed. This is kind of a half-formed thought, so bear with me, but when we're talking about like that liminal age as you're like growing up and exploring the, the limits of your own mortality and things like that, 
at that age, like the company you keep and what you're surrounded by is largely due to circumstance. It's the kids you're going to school with, the kids in your neighborhood. You don't have control over that. Hmm. Kids who are growing up now with widespread adoption of the internet from a, a very young age, there's more agency in terms of finding groups to belong to and finding identity. I don't know. Are, do you see any like manifestations of that in the students you teach or do you have any insight on that? So the students that I teach, largely the way that they write about social media is it's a continuation of the groups that they have to be in already. So like their social network, Mm -hmm. it's almost like it's a continuation of the in-school social network. And I'm certain, especially with the students that uh, like my gamer students, they have more of an opportunity to branch outside of those groups. But a lot of my students, the way that they write about social media And the social interaction that comes with is they almost write about it as like an enhanced version of their high school experience. So I had one student, she felt like she was lost in a maze of just cyberbullying and all the things that she could no longer escape when she went home. Wow. And so that became, it almost became like an amplification of these are the groups you've been dealt with. And if you don't happen to fit in with them then you're going to have to wait it out until you get to a bigger setting where you can find new people, right? And so when I, when my students talk about things like that, it just makes me really grateful that I didn't have access to social media. Right, yeah. Because <laughs> I was a weird kid writing in-sync fan fiction in class. Right. <laughs> I, did not need to, I didn't need to see anything outside of the school. <laughs> I think that's interesting, though, because that's so different from my own experience, which was like, Online and the groups I was participating in were much more my own choice and not the same as my like mm-hmm. real world social groups. Okay. And I don't know if that is an era thing or just uh, how I was, but like I was participating in uh, forums and message boards a lot when I was very young around like video games or like animation. And and it felt to me like this was what I get to choose to engage with and all the other stuff is what I like have to engage with. Yeah, my, mine were like that too. It was very special interest focus, like, you know, magic or mentalism or music or stuff like that. You know, and I, I think with your example, it's kind of like that too. That That is the, the folk group of your choosing at that point versus the um, I'm going to just deal with what life throws at me folk group that we get in high school and college and everything else. But but what you see is that largely the students write about the experiences they have with the same group of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a lot of the examples that they'll use, too. Also, they'll write about different teams getting in trouble for posting things that they shouldn't have or the cyberbullying that takes place. I think I've had one or two students from this area, and even in Louisiana, one or two students who have written about the folk groups that they've found. But the what the ones that do write about that they write about them in like that profound manner of like, I have found my space. I have found my people and had such a good feeling when you're trapped, especially when you're in a small town. It's such an interesting thing. I have a piece of conjecture that I, I want both of your thoughts on. So someone who is 21 right now was born in 2002. Um, so by the time that they were functioning with their own agency, the internet was pretty widespread. I wonder if this experience of the internet being an extension of your physical social group has anything to do with the unification of online platforms? Again, those pillars, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I mean, the the thing that I'm seeing pop up more now than what I saw like 10 years ago when I was 
starting to, to study some of this is that now there are more localized groups as well. So there, you know, Facebook, you're going to have your neighborhood group. And then like these other groups that kind of follow you around to whatever area you're, you're at, like a Yik Yak or, or something like that, where people are largely anonymous, but it is their own peer group. And so I, I think that there's an encouragement to make this wide world of the internet a little bit smaller around people that you might be able to interact with on a more local level as well. Yeah, I think I'm mentally calling back to uh, something I believe Chelsea said. People, we used to say, you know, the people you meet on the internet, you don't know if they're real. They're like fake. It wasn't treated like a real place. And then now it's much more about real people. I'm wondering if there was a paradigm shift or if I just feel like there was a paradigm shift in terms of how we think about our identities and communities online that we engage with. Yeah, I mean, even just my own experience on social media, it is it has over time gotten less niche. Whereas like middle school, early high school, me had my different corners of the internet, which was like my fiction Lynn group. So there was like this group of people that had this thing in common and then they built out their connections that way. But now the way that I use, I mean, the primary one that I'm usually on is Instagram and Instagram doesn't, doesn't lend itself so much to the group formations, although I suppose it could. Mm -hmm. So maybe it has to do with the way in which you're kind of like mindfully utilizing the tools that we have. And then Young people, like my students, might not realize all of the different paths that they could take. And that's a lot of what they'll write about, especially when we do the media literacy. That's where the comp one thing is that they find that I didn't know any of this stuff about social media. And I wish that I did. Like all the ways that it's designed to manipulate me in certain ways, but then all the ways that it's designed to keep certain types of information from me because it doesn't fall in my purview of what the data, what the data I've put out there has said about me. I wonder if there's something to how you use it and how you're taught to use it. I'm a little bit surprised that students coming in still don't realize the algorithmic influence and everything else, because it feels like there are some kids that you'll let them know that, and they're like, yeah, I hear that all the time. And then there are others that are completely, I guess, oblivious to it. Mm -hmm. Um. Since we're coming up close towards the, the bottom of the hour, I wanted to ask one final question. Is there any particular one piece of insight that a student has brought to your attention that was like really an, an epiphany for you or was like particularly impactful? My favorite things that students do is when they, they teach me something that I never ever thought about. One student, she was writing about social media and brain development. And it was so interesting because the way she was writing about it is that if a kid gets social media too early at a certain point in their brain development, it trains them to see themselves through an external lens as opposed to learning to see themselves mm. through their internal lens and get their internal validation. And I thought that was so fascinating. And it's interesting to connect it to folk groups to think about what does that disruption in the way we see ourselves, what does that potentially do then to the way in which we interact with folk groups? Because we choose our folk groups based on our own internal selves. Like we move in and out of them based off of whether or not they meet with our sensibilities that we currently have at the time. We leave them if they no longer suit our identities and the, and the things that we value. And so if we have something causing kids to be so reliant on external forces to shape who they are, that's curious about what that does then to the formation of how we join and how we choose our folk groups and enter, enter and exit out of them. Is that 
perhaps what makes people dig in even harder when people in their folk groups are challenged because that is your source of primary validation? Yeah, exactly. Right. And like all of the, I mean, you, we think about the, uh, there's a technologist, Tristan Harris, he calls it the outrageification on social mm-hmm. media. And yeah, like, because it, it's not just attacking an idea that you have, it's attacking your whole self. And you're like, how dare you disagree with me on this thing that is part of who I am? Um, There's a very big difference having a disagreement and having your whole sense of self being attacked. Yeah. Right. You're invalidated. Yeah. And that feels so much more like an attack than it feels like a discussion. Yeah. It's an, it was an interesting, it was something I had never thought about what social media at different stages of our development can do to us. And that was a really cool paper that she wrote. Sounds like it. Yeah. If people want to start to follow your work or learn a little bit more about what you do, what's the best way for them to do so? Uh, they can, people can find me on Twitter. That's my uh, my public my public profile. Awesome. Yeah, I've got some links on there on my Twitter profile that goes to all the works that I've done. Awesome. Great. Thank you so much, Cassandra. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, I downloaded all the tracks. That was a great chat. Yeah, it was. Cassandra's wicked cool. I don't know if we really narrowed anything down, though. <laughs> no, not not really. Always that with folklore, isn't it? So much more than you expect. True, true, true. What if, what if we narrowed our talk down to just one platform? It would need to be a popular one, though. One that's uh, not too niche. But also not one that's too popular. Like, we can't just do Twitter. That's too big. Yeah, don't you mean X? You know, I have a weird gut feeling that it's going to be called Twitter again in the near future. Oh, really? Yeah, I do. You willing to go on the record for that? (laughs) Yeah, why not? I'll give it a year before it's either gone or it's called Twitter again. Digby, you catch that? You know it. I'd never miss a chance to make Mason look dumb in the future. I set a reminder to go off a year from now. Now Don't worry, you make Mason look dumb now. Wow, okay, yeah, all right, both of you then. You're going to eat those words. Anywho, um, we can narrow down our focus by doing something a little bit more specific than X, but maybe less specific than like a Stack Overflow. Also something that's not new, something that's established. I mean, what fits that criteria? Uh, first thing that comes to mind is Yahoo Answers, but that got shut down. <sighs> I think we should probably do something that's still active. Oh, something like uh, Tumblr. My kids are still on Tumblr. Yeah, Tumblr's a good choice. That's been around for ages, right? Digby. Uh, 2007. 2007. And it's still going strong. And it does have a really specific kind of user base. And it's gone through a fair share of trouble and changes. And now that I think about it, we know somebody who's really familiar with Tumblr. We do? Yeah, Lauren Shippen. Oh, oh, yeah. I always think of her as the person who made the Bright Sessions. I forget she has a whole podcast specifically about Tumblr. Exactly. It's Dashboard Diaries. It's her and Cher McAnally, right? Who literally works for Tumblr? Yeah. Oh, what do you think the odds are they'd be down for a Zoom call right now? We don't know unless we try, right? Yeah, I'll uh, I'll send him an email. Also a Twitter DM. And also probably a Tumblr DM. I'm Lauren Chippen, a writer and longtime Tumblr user who makes Dashboard Diaries with my wonderful co-host. Hello, I am Cherokee McAnally, the head of entertainment at Tumblr, uh, where I've been haunting the dashboard for the past nine years. And we make Dashboard Diaries where we talk about Tumblr and all of the weird stuff that goes on there, including diving into our own embarrassing Tumblr archives. If you are a fan or a fan of fandoms or a Tumblr user, 
Tumblr or want to understand what's going on on Tumblr, that's really what our show is for. And it's a fun show. It is. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So I thought it'd be fun to do a little quiz. I'm going to give you four movie titles. One of them is a, is real, and I need you three to pick the real movie. Oh, gosh. Mm. So, Gondra from the 1970s, directed by Martin Scorsese. Mm-hmm. Shazam from the 90s, starring Sinbad. Kazam from the 90s, starring Shaquille O'Neal. Interview with a Vampire from the 90s, based off the book of the same name. Which of these is a real movie? I think it was Shazam, right? Because there was a whole Mandela effect about Kazam starring Shaquille O'Neal. And that was a whole thing on the internet that I feel like I remember seeing. Mm -hmm. And I think it was a Sinbad movie, right? Cherokee Perry, what do you guys think? Well, my thought was going to be Kazam. So now I feel like I have been Mandela affected. Oh, no. (laughs) No, For me, the, the real one was Shazam because I think I was old enough to see it when it first came out. Oh, but I could be remembering wrong. That's how Mandela effect works, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right, so we've got two votes for Shazam and one vote for Kazam. Is that where we're at? Yes. Which one? Which one had Sinbad? Shazam had Sinbad. The one with Sinbad is the real one. All right. So the real movie in this is Kazam, starring Shaquille O'Neal. <gasps> oh no! It hey, look at that. There is, of course, now a movie called Shazam starring Zachary Levi that's in the DC universe. Right. And the interview with a vampire was a little bit of a of a tricky tricky one um, because this was a Mandela effect that I that happened to me earlier this year when I started watching the TV show. I've always remembered it as interview with a vampire. It's interview with the vampire, mm. which I didn't know. Yeah. But yeah, Kazam is a real movie. Shazam is not. But a lot of people do remember seeing a movie with Sinbad, but it doesn't exist. I got double mandela You got double mandela <laughs> <laughs> I have to think of something you encounter all the time in, in digital folklore. That was something that th- it threw me for a loop when I first heard about it. It's called the Mandela Effect because a lot of people remember Nelson Mandela dying in prison, I think, in mm-hmm. the uh, 80s. I might have that wrong, but Nelson Mandela did not. He died in 2013. Yeah. It's the communal mass misremembering of things is proof that we have shifted to an alternate universe. <laughs> right. Yes. One yeah. of the prevailing theories for a lot of Mandela effects is that the Large Hadron Super Collider from... um, CERN. Yeah, CERN. Uh, The last time they did that, they actually inflicted a multiverse on everybody. You know what? I believe it. And I like to think that there's a multiverse somewhere where I can actually watch Gontrov. It's a real movie that exists. We should probably talk about what Gontrov is and how exactly it began. Um, So Gontrov is a movie uh, by Martin Scorsese uh, from the 1970s. It's the greatest mob movie ever made, and it doesn't exist. It is a essentially mass (laughs) hallucination, but, but like a participatory hallucination that Tumblr had last fall that grew out of a post from... A few, like a few years prior, actually, mm-hmm. of these knockoff boots that have a fake sort of movie poster on the the, the tongue of the boot, and it and it says Martin Scorsese presents Gontrov, and then a bunch of other information. And this post floated around the internet for a couple of years. There's actually a Reddit post about it as well, and everybody's sort of speculating on like what it was actually trying to be. Most people agree that it was that the real film I was trying to reference was Gamora from 2008. But then for some reason, last fall, Tumblr decided to pretend that this was a real movie and make it so. I remember seeing it actually 
like 18 months ago on my own Tumblr dash. Really? Because somebody commented like, this loser hasn't even seen Goncharov. And it was was just like a, you know, a joke. And then for whatever reason. Oh. Yeah, November of 2022, I think the first post that really blew up was a movie poster that somebody made, Mm -hmm. a Goncharov movie poster. And then Cherokee, I mean, you got to see behind the scenes this thing take flight what happened <laughs> yeah so it i the that movie poster which you know cast the film and everything essentially created the you know framework in which everyone could kind of play with goncharov right so i think that was really the catalyst and i'm looking right now at our at our last six months metrics and the metrics for goncharov it is a like line straight up in the air on the line graph Overnight, genuinely overnight, on the 21st of November, there it went from, you know, barely just a few searches for Goncharov, uh, like there were a few thousand starting on the 20th, and on the 21st, there were over 133,000 searches alone, 12,000 posts made, 212,000 reblogs, and this is just Jeez. on that one day. So it really was just like a powder keg, just like from zero to 100, zero to a million, genuinely overnight. And that engagement kind of continued uh, for about a week on like a high level, and then it kind of slowed down around like mid to late December. When you're doing those those analytics, do you have the ability to understand like what population that's coming from? Oh, it's not, unfortunately, something uh, that at least I, with my uh, very basic statistics knowledge, know know how to access. Gotcha. What What would you say, Cherokee, is is likely the the Tumblr user base demographics? Like, is that something that? Well, I can. Yes, I can share that with you. Uh, we've never talked about that for some reason. <laughs> I have a doc I can pull up right here, so I'm not guesstimating. Okay, so. Tumblr is 42% Gen Z, 38% Millennial, and 20% Gen X and Boomer. Hmm. We are, like, gender split is 56% female, 44% male, or identifying as. Mm -hmm. And our biggest user base is definitely in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one kind of interesting thing that we do track is duplication across platforms. So, for Mm. example, 74% of people who are on Tumblr are not on Snapchat. Interesting. 51% for TikTok, 48% for Twitter. So Tumblr really is, for those who are really active on Tumblr, it's their primary uh, social platform. Half of Tumblr users do not use TikTok? Correct. That's buck wild to me. That is wild. Yeah. Especially given the breakdown of almost half being Gen Z. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do think there was a big exodus from other social platforms to Tumblr. I like, I feel like this is not a correct characterization, but I always call Tumblr the antisocial social platform because you're so much (laughs) like, you're engaging about your passions with people you may not know. It's kind of where you can kind of go to dive in and geek out, be unapologetically yourself often people are anonymous on there. And I do think that kind of drove a lot, just like we see a lot of Gen Z. There's like a movement for flip phones because people are starting to use their socials and other things just on their computers and keeping their phones to like reduce their screen time. And so I do think it was very much like a rejection of like the social aspect of social media, even though Tumblr obviously is a very social platform, but in a completely different way, I feel, than others. I never see it as a competitor of other platforms because I think it's so different and like unique. It's just mm-hmm. a completely different mm-hmm. beast. Yeah. 
It's very artist-friendly. Yeah. Yeah. This is a bit of a divergence, but I'm super curious because I did not know that there was any sort of a push of people moving away from smartphones as their primary way of interacting mm-hmm. with social media and back to computers. That yeah. breaks my brain a little bit because I use my computer primarily for them, but I, I feel like an, I feel old <laughs> for doing that. Right. So you're telling me the kids are doing that now. And it's cool again. It's cool to have a flip phone. Yeah, I have from what I have heard. Yes. And I will say I have seen more and more flip phones when I'm just out and about kind of in the world, you know, with like the younger age groups. Yeah. I feel like I sound very hello fellow kids right now. <laughs> saying this, <laughs> right. But it's true. Like I do. Yeah, I have like there has been uh, a distinct kind of shift away from smartphones. And honestly, I thought I saw that. And I was like, that sounds great. I would love yeah. to yeah. not be glued to my phone all the time. Yeah. Can you imagine? I remember the First time I got a flip phone back when texting, you used to have to pay by character on it. And, uh, (laughs) oh my God. But it would take literally, you know, forever to write like a three sentence text. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. you just have those keys and you're like, oh, I need a T. How many times do I have to press this key? I remember T9 word being a godsend. Mm -hmm. I was really good at texting with T9 word. Yeah. I actually just, uh, my my parents sent me a package from San Francisco with things I'd left. I'm from San Francisco originally with things I'd left uh, at home. And for some reason, one of the things they shipped me was my first flip phone. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) So now I have that for some reason. No charger. Sell some Gen Zer in uh, Brooklyn. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They were like, you might, we we have a feeling you might want this so you can fit in with the kids. You should absolutely create a flip phone app though, (laughs) just to see what consumption (laughs) is like. Yeah. <laughs> on that form factor. <laughs> we used to have text to post. You could text a number what you wanted your post to say, and it would post on your Tumblr. Uh, I think we we sunsetted that a few years Seriously? ago. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh. So um, I'll just, I'll tell you a quick story because I'm, you know, in an upper demographic. I just turned 50 last year probably about the time Goncharov was going hot on uh, on <laughs> Tumblr. So I had used Tumblr a few years ago, and it, you know, it didn't click with me at the time. But my kids are huge Tumblr users. And I was like, you know, what, what's going on with Tumblr? And my son said, you know, it, this is where all these, you know, very niche groups of people hang out. Both him and I are, are on the autism spectrum. So he said there's a whole bunch of neurodivergence there. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a whole bunch of uh, friends that are, you know, spread across several different communities and those communities are represented there as well. Um, and then he said, let me send you some of the the best posts that I've seen. And he sent this post about um, somebody that had a dream that they were uh, working at a delicatessen selling clown meat. And, you know, just all of the, all the interaction about, I think I've seen that what, you know, what is clown meat? Is it human? Is it not human? And, and what are the laws and the ethics surrounding this? And just the way everybody was piling onto this, you know, creating this really interesting, rich discussion about clown meat. And I thought yeah. that that was fantastic. Look, only on Tumblr. Yeah, I really, I really do think that 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 and just like Gontrov in general is a thing that could only happen on Tumblr because of who the user base is and what they like to do and the way that they behave. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. 
It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. What was amazing, and here I will drop this, um, this document in the chat here, is that somebody compiled a document of all of the Goncharov lore, the script excerpts, the scoring that people made, the casting, the costuming. <laughs> it's, that master doc is amazing. Oh, my god! The, the level of detail that's in that is crazy. It's incredible. Can I just bring something up? That's the first thing I saw. Is the act of adding lore to the Goncharov story referred to as gaunching? Is it referred to as Gonching? Well, the very first line says there's a Discord server now for Gonching. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think Gonching, I, I mean, I've seen Gonching used more generally to just mean like participating in the Gontra fandom, mm-hmm. right? So like, I think that, I think that, you know, if you are just playing along with the joke, I think you are Gonching. Rather, you don't necessarily have to be adding to the lore. And I also don't know, you know, I think that there's so much out there on Tumblr that's not in this document, that's probably not in the Discord, that it, but that is on Tumblr of people adding to the lore, people, you know, putting their headcanons for, forward, which in this case, a headcanon could easily become canon because there is no real canon. And so it does become this like sort of democratic system of like, okay, well, what, what posts are getting big enough that the people who are making these documents are hanging out in these discords are sort of making them official of lore. Well, I mean, the the cool thing about, you know, a master doc like that and some of the other um, posts that are that have been out there, so the, some of the other archival ways of managing this is that they are literally managing the canon in a lot of ways of saying, yeah. um, no, you can't or at least you shouldn't try to create something that is directly competing with or conflicting with this other set of quote-unquote facts that we've established or scene mm-hmm. structures that we've established or casting or um, catchphrases or anything else. I think that that's, it's fascinating to see the group agreement with that as well. Yeah. And I do think it's really interesting just given the fan casting power of Tumblr as well. I mean, I always think about how many movies and shows uh, have been fan cast on Tumblr before they were cast uh, elsewhere and they were completely accurate. Most recently, (laughs) Ben Barnes from Shadow and Bone as the Darkling. That was a Tumblr fan cast that, you know, became reality. And so I do think Tumblr somehow has this kind of hive mind where everyone just like agrees on the vibe or something, because it really did feel like, yeah, this is the cast and this is the plot. And obviously there's a big uh, deal with clocks like throughout as symbolism, like, duh, you know, so I just like I love that kind of seamless agreement that just happens. Tumblr is yes and personified, right? Oh, um, yes, that's it. Mm. One of the things that I've loved too is I've seen some I'll have to I'll have to make sure to to reblog this ne- next time I see one of these posts. But I've seen posts and certainly back in November when there was lots of gaunching going on that are like 
you know, modern AU of Goncharov. And it's people like doing like posts about a fan AU of canon that fans make. <laughs> like it's this, we, and you know, and there's, mm-hmm. there's like five, over 500 fix in the Goncharov tag on AO3, the largest fan fiction website. Well, and uh, I think you hit on something there though, when you talk about AO3 is, is that the reason that something like this can take off so well on Tumblr is you do have a fantastic collection of creative people, creative writers, mm-hmm. uh, artists, people who can put these things together. And it's an outlet for them. So it's not just trying to do something for the sake of doing it, it's something for the the creative process and the community that they're wanting to uh, get involved in. And it would come out some other way if, if it didn't go into Goncharov. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I feel like it's built co- with collaboration in mind. It's so easy for people to kind of pile on a post. Oh, and we could we could talk about that in a second, too, because that fits into what makes something viral is that participation piece. And there's been a lot of studies on that. Well, and I think that I, d- I do think that there is something unique about Tumblr's infrastructure and like the way that actually Tumblr functions. Tumblr now is very much, yes, the home of fandom on the Internet. Like, sure, there's fandom on TikTok and on Twitter, but like Tumblr has just sort of always been that. But I think it became that because of the way in which reblogs work, the way that the dashboard works, the way that you can have a Tumblr account and have a bunch of sub-blogs that you can post to. So you can have your Marvel sub-blog, you can have your DC Comics so that they don't overlap because some people really like to keep their fandom blogs very specific. Whereas if you want to do that on Twitter, you would have to create separate accounts for each new Twitter profile. Yeah. Yeah. Tumblr supports very well natively all sorts of media that you can include in a post. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it, even audio posts, which is not something you really see anywhere else. That's true. Um, but, you know, you can do photos and videos and quotes and reblogs and things like that, all in ways that are presented very well. Whereas, like, video on Twitter is like a compromise from a user element standpoint because it was mm. added in later and it doesn't super fit with the design. Mm-hmm. I think when you look at, at uh, platforms, you do have to think about how do I want to interact on platform X? And it has to be tailored to that. And I think... Tumblr um, is very much, it's it caters towards somebody that needs to express themselves, period. And it's going to let them do that. Yeah. Um, versus like TikTok, where you, you do have to be fairly comfortable with doing something on video. But TikTok itself is also, it's a folklore factory in a lot of ways because it allows you to create something and then it can let somebody else become part of the conversation by stitching or duoing or something like that. And I think uh, Tumblr does that, but in a much more uh, multi-mode type of way. So you can get all these different uh, creative vibes. You know, somebody's a great writer, somebody's a great uh, manipulator of imagery, somebody else is going to create music and and so on. And it just comes together in a, a very full way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I like how on, on Tumblr, like, as you said, like, you can kind of build posts exactly how you want to see them. And then you can also add on to people's posts in kind of whatever media you want as well. You can rebog and add a poll or a photo or a GIF or whatever it is. And so I think you kind of see like the journey that it's taken across all these people's blogs, especially when it's one of those posts that becomes, you know, like uh, like a reblog chain where people are just adding on uh, their own kind of take there's, oh gosh, there was this, I think it was the, was it the Mr. Sandman, Man Me a Sand, like that collaborative <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Make him so sandy. So like they, they made up an entire song. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> nice. Thank you for re-unlocking well, that in my brain. Um, <laughs> um, there's one other thing that, that I want to touch on. There's probably two reasons for this. One is because I found it in a book called Memes and Digital Culture, and it is from the Mandela Effect version of Lauren. 
somebody named Lamore Schiffen. Um, and the name sounds so close to yours. Yeah, I was about to say. In a weird alternate universe type of way. <laughs> that, that, um, oh, my God. From the multiverse where Goncharov exists. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. And and in her book on memes, and this is like 10 years old at this point, she wrote about a study from Jonah Berger and Katie Milkman. And they talked about the five Ps of what makes something go viral. And so one is positivity. So it's something that people can enjoy, can have fun in, they can celebrate. Another one is provoking high arousal emotions. And that's usually things like anger or joy, celebration. Uh, another one is, is packaging, just the way that it looks, the way that it feels. Prestige of you know maybe being associated with somebody great like Martin Scorsese. Uh, and then the last one is participation. Is Can everybody pile on? to this thing. And I think when you look at you know, something like Goncharov, it is because you see uh, several of these things lining up in just the perfect way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I that's that's really interesting because it sort of relates to a book that I'm I'm reading right now called uh, Because Internet, yeah. which is about the the history of internet language. And one of the things that she talks about in it in the chapter that I just read was specifically around early memes as we think of of memes, right? So like lolcats and doge and, and these various things and sort of the impact font memes and how in the beginning they were existing in a very specific community because of the amount of effort that it took to make them. And then when sort of meme maker websites came to fruition, all of a sudden they exploded. And I think that the ability to participate and the ease of participation is so important and something that definitely lends itself to the Gontraff phenomenon, because yes, you can be a beautiful visual artist or an incredible writer and write script, you know, pieces or write music or whatever it is. But you can also just be a person with a Tumblr account who like makes a post about a moment in Gontrav like you would talk about a moment in a movie. And because there's no sort of one true source, everybody's participation is is equal. And I think that's really unique. I love the internet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So much. I think we covered a lot of ground. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we definitely did. This was such an interesting conversation. Thank you so much. So much fun. Well, thank you. Yeah, no, thank you both. This is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, so, so great. Yeah, let's do this again soon. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Those two are awesome. Yeah, and I think Goncharov's like the perfect thing to talk about. It fits Meme Expo really well. I think we can take a folkloric angle on it. A hundred percent. And I can start in on an outline. Oh, holy smokes, dude. We have to like mobilize. Holy it's 7 a.m. Um, what? All drive, you start drafting on the road. Oh, I was kind of hoping we could split the drive and at least get in a power nap each. I think the sleep ship has sailed. Let's uh, stock up on energy drinks on the way out of town. Yeah, as if a giant meme expo isn't already enough of a fever dream. All right. Dig Bay. Hey, we're heading out. Okay. Are you too good to drive? You've been up all night. I know that's typically not good for humans. What a weird way to put that. Yeah, we're fine. Obviously, if it uh, gets dicey, we'll just stop and figure something out. Did you decide what you're presenting on? Yeah, we're going to talk about Goncharov, which is this like, it's a movie that doesn't exist, but everyone on Tumblr is pretending it does as a meme. And there's a ton of lore. It's wild. Oh. What? I swear, it's it's way more interesting than I just made it sound. No, it's... Ugh. There's already a Goncharov panel at noon. No, you're kidding. Well, hey, clearly that means it was a good idea, right? What are we going to do? We're going to drive there, and um, we're just going to have to wing it. On virtually no sleep. Sounds like it. I don't know why I'm acting like this isn't par for the course. All right, let's bounce. 
Hold the fort down, Diggs. We'll be back soon. Bring back stickers for me. What is he gonna do with stickers? Oh, you haven't seen his room? You mean the uh, utility closet? Yeah, I told him he could have it. I thought that Digby's office sign was a joke. Hey, yeah, it sort of is. It's not an office so much as it's a tiny little bedroom. Great. I mean, come on, practically speaking though, it's good to have someone on site 24 seven. All that audio gear is expensive. Plus, I get wicked annoyed when they don't deliver packages because I wasn't there to sign for them. I'm just gonna gloss over the fact that you taught a raccoon how to forge your signature. I mean, what does the UPS guy even say when that happens? Come on, you're not so weird about Digby being on the team, right? Having someone that can Google things with their brain is actually the thing that I really like about Digby. All the signature stuff and the, the editing, <laughs> you know, take that with a grain of salt. Yeah, I mean, hey, honestly, I never saw the internet brain thing coming. Hey, I didn't notice the van has a built-in DVD player. Blu-ray, um, oh. but I never turned it on. But what if there's something in it from the previous owner? Five bucks says it's either Serenity or Biodome with Polly Shore. Uh, Harry, why are those the two ones that you would... Oh. No way. That is so funny. We were literally talking about Shazam earlier. I thought that that was the one that doesn't exist. No, it's the other way around, obviously. Are you sure? Yeah, it'd be pretty wild if I was holding a DVD that doesn't exist. Are you sure you're good to drive? No, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fine to drive. I just, I'm, I'm not even that tired, really. I, for some reason, I just, something flipped my brain. What's that phenomenon? It's the thing where you hear about something and then you start noticing it everywhere. Thanks for listening to Digital Folklore. And a huge thanks to our special guests this episode, Dr. Cassandra Pfeiffer, Lauren Shippen, and Cherokee McAnally. As always, take a look at the show notes of this episode and you'll find links to all of their work. You can also find a link to the Digital Folklore Discord channel where you can hang out and chat with us as well as other fans of the show. If you haven't left us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please uh, consider doing that. We're like an urban legend. You gotta keep us alive by telling a friend, a friend of a friend, a crazy uncle, you get it. Digital Folklore is a production of Eighth Layer Media, which is a fancy name that Perry and I hide behind to seem more like we know what we're doing. And for tax purposes. And for tax purposes. <laughs> Thanks again for listening. We'll see you soon. I can't believe how many of these torrents are still up. No way. Uh, it's gotta be like a student film or something. There's no real Goncharov, right? I can't get this far and not find out. It's just one download. If it seems sketchy, I'll just stop it and delete it. A uh, four hours. What kind of dial-up download speed is this? Ugh. More people need to see these things. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. <laughs> 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.